One God, one story. One problem, one solution. One book, one hero. God himself. Section by section, movement by movement, like acts of a play. Unfolding on the stage of time. Eternal God pulls back the curtain and lets his creation catch a glimpse of his unchanging commitment to justice and his demonstration of loving kindness. In the beginning, God. It's not the first page, probably. There's probably a few extra pages in your book but when you come to the actual text Genesis beginnings in the beginning God as the curtain pulls back the stage is dark the scripture says in Genesis 1 verse 2 that the earth was formless and empty that it was dark and darkness was over the face of the deep And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. The creation account has God speaking and God acting. He saw the light was good, verse 4 says. He separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning and it was one day. Then God said, let the expanse between water separating water from water and God made the expanse separate from the water. The water above and the water below and so it was. God called the expanse sky, and evening came, then the morning, the second day. As you begin to look at how God created, you keep seeing the phrase over and over again, that it was after their own kind, after their own kind. You know, I've you would assume that as a pastor, I've read the creation account before. You would assume that I've read the book of Genesis before. But as I was reading again, and I was looking at God saying, after their kind, after their kind, it's interesting that, that he would say, as he created the great lights, it says in verse 16, he made two great light, the greater light to rule over the day, the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. (laughs) What an understatement. Can can you think about being outside and looking at the stars? Now, most of us have so much ground light that we we can't see the stars where we live. Boy, I'll never forget one night in Kenya after I'd been with a bunch of missionaries and we walked out to walk back from the teaching hall back to where we were staying And I looked up, I have never seen so many stars in all of my life. The 
sky just covered with the scars. KK and I walk out and we, we look up and we try to figure out which one's the North Star, which one's the big little dipper. You know, I never can get it right. I mean, I, I, I know some people have just got that knack, but I have trouble figuring out the stars. When you think about how far away they are and you think about how long it even took us to see that and you hear people say, well, you know, why would there be such a big universe and just little life on one planet? Uh, there's got to be life on other planets. I mean, why would this big universe be wasted on one little earth? And my response to that question is, if it were about me, that might be a good question. But it's about God. And he has the right to create the universe any way he wants for his own entertainment and for his own pleasure. One man said, it's like a man walking around with a peanut in his pocket when you consider the earth in reference to God. Such an amazing creator. And after its own kind, he repeated, over and over again. But then you come to verse 27 of Genesis 1. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He'd been speaking and creating. But in chapter 2, when it goes over this again, it tells us that God made us from the dust. And when he formed us, and was breathing life in us. Isn't it interesting that he quit saying that it would just come after its own kind. But God then created us in the image of God. Now what does it mean to be in the image of God? I was talking with Clark about that this morning before the service. Any of you that know Clark know that. My mind compared to his is like a peanut in a pocket. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, it's just my mind so so hard for me to comprehend some of the things. But we talked about the image of God. What does it mean that we had the image of God? Did we lose the image of God when we sinned? And what happened to the image of God? Well, there's no question that the image of God was marred, but it was not removed. There's no question that the image of God was effaced, but it was not erased. There's something about the image of God that's still in us because even later after sin, when God speaks to Noah, he talks about that they should not shed blood because of the image of God. And James, when he said, how can we use our mouth to speak praise to God and then curse our fellow man who is in the image of God? There's something about that common grace that God is moving in our lives and we see one another and we know, hey, I didn't make you. <laughs> I, I'm not in charge of you. But there's something about you just like there's something about me. And what is this image of God? The scripture as it unfolds tells us that the image of God was marred because of sin. Go to chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse, well, we can just take a minute, if you like, and walk through the story a little slower. Somebody asked me, staying with the children, how long will your sermon be? I said, 32 minutes. 
at least 32 minutes, okay? But I mean, where do you stop and where do you keep going? God made them in chapter 2. We see the recounting of him putting them in the garden. And then we see, as he said to them in verse 15, the Lord took man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. Now, make sure you get that because I, I want to conclude with telling you that work was before the fall, okay? Maybe some of the hard work and the sweat was after the fall, but there was dignity to work before the fall. The Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now you've heard the story. The serpent came to Eve and talked to her about the fruit of the tree. She took it and then she gave it to her husband who was with her. And they disobeyed the instruction of God. But let me ask you, did they die? The day you eat of the tree, you will die. I I thought the story moves on and God comes and talks with them after they ate of the tree. You will certainly die. Did they die? Spiritually, they died. How do you define death? Death is separation. Simple terms, separation. You can be in the room with a body of someone that you a few moments ago might have been speaking with, but now they're breathing no longer, and you're with them, but you're separated from them. We call that death. And in the moment they ate of the tree, they did die. Because the scripture says that they, in chapter 3, they went and they, they knew they were naked, verse 7, So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Verse 8 says that the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. I'm in chapter 3, verse 8. They hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. Creation, the image of God. The fall, sin, and death. Genesis 3 verse 9 says, the Lord called out to the man and said, where are you? It's like a parent playing hide and seek with a kid. And you can see their foot behind the couch and you say, where did she go? I have no clue where she is. Did God know where they were? Of course he knew where they were. We, we even learned something about God's pursuing us, even in how he did this. He went to them, he called out to them, and he said, now where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then the Lord said, so who told you that you were naked? Did God know about the serpent? Did God know about the sin? Of course he did. But as God was revealing it to Adam, the man said back to him in verse 12, 
the woman you gave be with me, she gave me just like a man, all right? The woman made me do it. And she said, the devil made me do it, right? Of course, they're not owning the accountability of their sinfulness. Then the Lord said, what have you done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So, yes. When they sinned, they surely did die. And the scripture goes on to show how in their sinfulness, they passed it on to their kids. Oh, he looks just like his daddy. Oh, he looks just like his mama. Oh, she looks just like her mother. Well, we all look just like Adam and Eve when it comes to our sin nature. Those cute, precious little babies that are back there now playing in our preschool, nobody had to teach them to say, mine, mine. Nobody had to teach them to grab the toy they were not playing with before the other person picked it up, and then they picked it up and said it was theirs. No one has to teach that, and no one has to teach that kid to run and hide when he does something wrong, just like Adam and Eve. I I just want to drive home this part of the story by going to chapter 4 for just a moment. We know what happened to Adam and Eve when they went and they hid. We know something about the death that took place in their sinfulness. But in Genesis chapter 4, the scripture says, The man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've had a male child with the Lord's help. Then she gave birth to to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of the flocks, and Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of his land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and from their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. What just happened? Adam and Eve had children. By now, they've been sent out of the garden, and Adam and Eve had children, and in their children, the sin nature was passed on, and Cain and Abel, sibling rivalry. You thought it was only your kids that argued, but you see it right here, brother against brother, and yes, there is sin, and When sin makes its full course, it brings forth death. Abel brought some of his offering, an animal. Cain brought some of his offering from the fruit of the ground. The Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? Why do you look so despondent? If you do what is right, wouldn't it be accepted? But if you do what is not right, then sin is crouching at the door, and it's desire for you, and you must rule over sin. But Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field and hang out for a while. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel, and he killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? He said, I don't know. (laughs) Once again. Did God know where Abel 
Come on. You with me, right? But God is revealing sinfulness to Cain. Where's your brother Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. But that's a different sermon, all right? So am I my brother's keeper? Then the Lord said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I just want to make sure you get the whole story. Adam and Eve sinned, and through their sin, death. Adam and Eve had children, and in their children, sin and death. So the story begins on the stage of a garden with God creating them in his image, but then we see the fall, and we see sin and death. It is truly paradise lost. Now, before they leave the garden, I, I brought this little Jesus storybook Bible up here with me because I want to remind you that we have one to give you in the back. And uh, I wanted to read to you, and I had nothing to mark my page. So, a little table turning page-turning music for a moment, please, okay? Uh, give me just a second to find it. And here, I found the page. This is after the sin in the garden. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of sin and the dark and the sadness that you let in here. Hey, I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. Genesis chapter 3. After the fall. After the sin, there is a very simple promise that God makes. As he speaks to them about their sinfulness, and he speaks to the serpent about what he had done, look at verse 15 of chapter 3. Genesis 3, verse 15. God said, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Do you see what that is? As God is speaking to the sinfulness that just took place in the garden, like this little storybook says, he made a promise. One day, through the seed of a woman, virgin-born, I will come, Messiah will come, and you will, yes, you will strike his heel, but he will strike your head. Do you see the promise even there in the garden? Just like we have been trying to say on the ministry guide and in other places, Christ really is the thread that holds this all together. 
The promise in the garden was that he would come. So let's talk about the one who would come. Christ is the very image of God. Listen to what the scripture says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The sun is in the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Christ is the thread that holds this together. Christ was promised. I I'm so visual, I have, to have, I have to have timelines, I have to draw everything. It doesn't, may not help you, but it helps me. All right, here we are in the garden, and Adam and Eve sin, and God says, one day, I'm going to show you how I answer this problem called sin. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there's the promise, the prediction the foreshadowing, the typology, the illustrations that we will see over the next few weeks pointing to the coming of Christ. And then, as it were, the centerpiece of time. Christ came, born of a woman, born under the law, at just the right time, that he might himself restore creation back to God. So the scripture says that as this thread, Christ is not only the perfect image of God presented to us, but Christ is the second Adam. Christ is the last Adam. Now to to get you there, I'm going to need to fast forward and show 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we find that Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church about death and resurrection. It's a very long chapter. And as he talks about the resurrection, he's answering some of their questions. So what, what happens after you die? And what kind of body do you have after you die? And how, how does this work if you're supposed to be a follower of Christ and, and you, you die? And so as he is trying to explain resurrection life to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want you to look at what he says. I want to show you just a couple of verses. 1 verse 22. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Who taught Cain and Abel to sin? In many ways, they were born again backwards, right? I mean, that's what happened. <laughs> they, they sinned, and they, they lost the sense of communion with God. Their spirits became dead, and the Scripture says that we all have been born dead. We all have been born in our sinfulness, and none of us in our own goodness can reach to God. And in Adam, we all die, but in Christ, we will be made alive. Then he goes on in verse 45, and he says, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. So let me ask you for a moment, church. Are we stretching this stuff too hard to say that Christ really is the thread that ties all this together? I don't think so. Even here, he's described as the first Adam and now the last Adam. 
Christ is the one that gives us life. And then the scripture goes on to talk about him as the last Adam. In Romans chapter 5, I, I had so much trouble deciding which verse to limit in Romans chapter 5. Because I knew you wanted a 32-minute sermon. All right, so how can I preach Romans chapter 5? I'm just going to show you one verse that shows how Christ is the thread that holds this together. In Romans chapter 5, verse 17, it says, By one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Who is that one man, church? Are you with me? Adam. Through by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. How much more? How much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus? He is the fulfillment of the restoration, the perfect God-man. And God put our sinfulness on him And the one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might have the very righteousness of God in him. Christ is the thread. He is the image of God. He is the last Adam. Christ gave his very blood, his very life to restore us to the Father. But as I reflected this week on the garden scene and what happened in the next chapter when sin continued I was reminded of what the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 11 if you have a Bible let me ask you to turn there and I just want to show you a couple of more verses which show us how Christ is the thread to tie this all together Hebrews chapter 11 The scripture says in verse 4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts. Let's talk just a minute. I intentionally didn't unpack this too much a moment ago. I wanted to wait until now. Cain and Abel, what was the difference? In their offerings. Uh, Let me try it this way. What was the difference in Adam and Eve's covering and God's covering? Adam and Eve made fig leaves to cover themselves. And the scripture says that God didn't accept that. That he took an animal and he killed an animal and he clothed them in the skins of the animal. Why? It was not just that he wanted them to be warmer than rotting fig leaves. I'm convinced he wanted even in covering their sin to show us that we cannot cover our own sin. That we need a covering provided by God. So why did God accept Cain, reject Cain's offering and accept Abel's? This is just my opinion. I can't give you any other explanation. But God was wanting to start a conversation 
about the needing to sacrifice blood to pay for sin. I just had this incredible image rush through my head. So let me sit down. I got a minute to tell you this story. I was in Calcutta. I went to Mother Teresa's home for the dead and dying, hopelessly laying hundreds of Indians near death. At least they were being treated with dignity on their deathbed. But I found myself weeping over, were they really going to hear the story of Jesus? Or were they just going to think to be in a place with a cross on it was good enough? I walked out of that place with such a heavy heart from the dying. And I walked around a corner to a place where they were slaughtering animals for a blood sacrifice. If you've ever been to India, there are multiple approaches to God expressed very close together. And there was blood everywhere. And I was reminded of how so many religions trying so hard to figure out how to get to God But even in all of that killing of those animals, they did not understand what God had designed. God said to his children, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and the blood represents life to me. And so when God went to Abel, and he accepted his sacrifice of an animal... It wasn't because God enjoyed seeing blood. God wanted to teach, I believe, that even then he was trying to say, you need to understand that it requires death to give life. It requires blood to give new life. That's why I'm going to send my son. And then the scripture said something so amazing. I don't know if you caught it when we read it a moment ago. When God came to Cain and confronted him about his sin, what did he say? The blood of your brother shouts to me from the ground. Because God heard the cry of the shedding of innocent blood, knowing that death had come forth because of sin. Now in the book of Hebrews we read, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Maybe it was because his heart was right and Cain's heart was wrong. I I mean, we can't see into the acceptability. But he goes on to say, through which God commended his faith as righteousness and God commended him by accepting his gift. And through his faith, listen to the scripture, though he is dead, yet he still speaks the blood of Abel cried to God of the need to deal with sin so in chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews we read this 
paragraph of multi-bullet points. <laughs> but I just pulled out one verse for you. We are coming, verse 24 of chapter 12 says, we are coming to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkled blood, catch this, that speaks better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cried death to God. The blood of Jesus cries forgiveness and life to God. And when we come to God, the old hymn writer put these words in exactly the right place. We come to the Father through Jesus, the Son, to give God the glory, great things he has done. So the story begins with God creating man and woman in his image. And the fall of sinfulness made them ashamed and God said, you can't cover your own sin, you need me. And he promised that one day he would send the satisfaction for sin. And even when the children continued in their sinfulness, God said, I hear sin crying to me And God knew that one day he would pass over all those sins. And at just the right time, the book of Romans says, he would look at Jesus and he would see that he is the one who is still just. And he's the one who makes us just because of Christ. So if that's the thread that ties the story together, how does this story of God intersect your story I just want to list a few basic things as we close I put this in first person so I, I think we can even read it and say it together if we, if we mean it God I've sinned and I've come short of your glory God, I tried to hide my sin and deny my accountability and say my wife made me do it. The serpent made me do it. I tried to hide. I tried to get fig leaves. I ran from you, but you came after me, and you found me in my sinfulness. And you told me that one day you would conquer, and you did. When Jesus shed his blood to pay for my sin and reconcile me to God, he gave me eternal life. So what does that mean to me now? In Christ, the image of God is being restored. And in Christ, a sense of design and dignity and destiny is being put over all who will come to God by Jesus. Is that you? Have you realized your sin? Have you tried to hide it from God? Have you tried to blame it on others? 
Would you be willing to say, God, you know where I am and you know what I've done. And yet you came after me and called me by name and made a way that I could be forgiven. Not through what I would do, but through what Jesus did.